Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Law School of America. A third-party beneficiary in the law of contracts is a person who may have the right to sue on a contract, despite not having originally been an active party to the contract. This right, known as a usquis item tertio, arises when the third party, tertius or alteri, is the intended beneficiary of the contract, as opposed to a mere incidental beneficiary, penitis extraneous. It vests when the third party relies on or assents to the relationship, and gives the third party the right to sue either the promisor, permittance, or performing party, or the promisee, stipulants, or anchor party, of the contract, depending on the circumstances under which the relationship was created. A contract made in favor of a third party is known as a third-party beneficiary contract. Under traditional common law, the usquis item tertio principle was not recognized, instead relying on the doctrine of privity of contract, which restricts rights, obligations, and liabilities arising from a contract to the contracting parties, said to be privy to the contract. However, the contracts, Rights of Third Parties, Act 1999 introduced a number of allowances and exceptions for usquis item tertio in English law. Other common law countries are also making reforms in this area, though the United States is unique in abandoning privity early in the mid-19th century. Usquis item tertio While the law on this subject varies, there is nonetheless a commonly accepted construction of third-party rights in the laws of most countries. A right of action arises only when it appears the object of the contract was to benefit the third party's interests and the third party beneficiary has either relied on or accepted the benefit. A promisee nominates a third party usually for one of two reasons, either the promisee owes something to the third party and the performance of this new obligation will discharge it, or the promisee will somehow get a material benefit by giving something to the third party. There are also two possible ways to explain the functioning of the contractual relationship, either the parties A, promisee, and B, promiser, contract each in his own name but with the intention of creating an opportunity for C, third-party beneficiary, to acquire a benefit, conditional upon acceptance, from B, or C immediately acquires a conditional right, from which A is able to release B until the moment of acceptance, when the right of A to release B is extinguished. In either case, a third-party contract differs from agency in that the promisee acts in his own name and for himself whereas an agent or representative does not. It is also distinguishable from a promesse de port fort under which the third party has a negative obligation to perform and, by expressing his consent, initially substitutes himself for an intended party to a contract and therefore binds himself. Also, as a somewhat distinct rule, the intended beneficiary of a third-party contract does not need to be in existence at the time the contract is concluded. This means a contract may benefit an unborn person usually a family member, or secure benefits for a legal person, such as a company, still in the process of forming or registering. Object to Benefit For third-party rights to come into existence, certain contractual criteria must be met to show an object to benefit. A valid contract must exist between two contracting parties and not some other relationship. The contracting parties must have intended to confer a benefit, and not a simple interest, 
to a third party, either expressly or impliedly. The third party beneficiary must be named or referred to, or is a member of a distinct class referred to. The intention to benefit must generally be irrevocable, though a life insurance policy is an exception. Some intimation to the third party of the contract's existence. Irrevocability. To be enforceable, a use quis item tertio must be irrevocable. This is established by any of the following. Delivery of the contract to the third party. Registration for publication. Intimation to the third party. The third party coming under onerous obligations on the faith of having a use quis item tertio. Evidence that the third party knew of the provision intended for his or her benefit. Acceptance. A third party beneficiary only acquires a right of action to enforce his benefit once he has accepted the benefit provided for in the contract. Under the South African interpretation, however, prior to formal acceptance of the benefit, the third party beneficiary only has a spes, or expectation, in other words, he does not have the right to accept, but rather a mere competency. Acceptance may also be a suspensive condition in certain contracts. Under Scott's law, acceptance is not necessary to be vested in a right of action but is necessary to be liable. Before acceptance, however, the use quis item tertio is tenuous so that acceptance of a benefit does not create a right, but rather entrenches that right. In either case, the contracting parties may vary or rescind the contract until acceptance or reliance. Intended v. Incidental Beneficiary In order for a third-party beneficiary to have any rights under the contract, he must be an intended beneficiary, as opposed to an incidental beneficiary. The burden is on the third party to plead and prove that he was indeed an intended beneficiary. Incidental Beneficiary An incidental beneficiary is a party who stands to benefit from the execution of the contract, although that was not the intent of either contracting party. For example, if Andrew hires Bethany to renovate his house and insists that she use a specific house painter, Charlie, because he has an excellent reputation, then Charlie is an incidental beneficiary. Neither Andrew nor Bethany is entering into the contract with a particular intent to benefit Charlie. Andrew simply wants his house properly renovated, Bethany simply wants to be paid to do the renovation. If the contract is breached by either party in a way that results in Charlie never being hired for the job, Charlie nonetheless has no rights to recover anything under the contract. Similarly, if Andrew were to promise to buy Bethany a Cadillac, and were to later go back on that promise, General Motors would have no grounds upon which to recover for the lost sale. Intended Beneficiary The distinction that creates an intended beneficiary is that one party, the promisee makes an agreement to provide some consideration to a second party, the promiser in exchange for the promiser's agreement to provide some product or service to the third-party beneficiary named in the contract. The promisee must have an intention to benefit the third party, though this requirement has an unusual meaning under the law. Although there is a presumption that the promiser intends to promote the interests of the third party in this way, if Andrew contracts with Bethany to have a thousand killer bees delivered to the home of Andrew's worst enemy Charlie, then Charlie is still considered to be the intended beneficiary of that contract. This would be illegal if the intent was to scare his enemy. Contracts are voided based on criminality. There are two common situations involving intended beneficiaries. Creditor beneficiary, for example, when Andrew owes some debt to Charlie, and Andrew agrees to provide some consideration to Bethany in exchange for her promise to pay Charlie some of the debt. Donee beneficiary, for example, when Andrew wishes to make a gift to Charlie and Andrew agrees to provide some consideration to Bethany in exchange for her promise to pay Charlie the amount of the gift. 
Under old common law principles, the donee beneficiary actually had a greater claim to the benefits this created, but such distinctions have been abolished. Vesting of rights Once the beneficiary's rights have vested, the original parties to the contract are both bound to perform the contract. Any efforts by the promiser or the promisee to rescind or modify the contract at that point are void. Indeed, if the promisee changed his mind and offered to pay the promiser money not to perform, the third party could sue the promisee for tortious interference with the third party's contract rights. There are four ways to determine whether the third party beneficiary's rights have vested. 1. If the beneficiary knows of and has detrimentally relied on the rights created. 2. If the beneficiary expressly assented to the contract at the request of one of the parties. 3. If the beneficiary files a lawsuit to enforce the contract, or 4. If the beneficiary's rights vest pursuant to an express term in the contract providing for such vesting. Breach and defenses. Where a contract for the benefit of a third party is breached by the non-performance of the promiser, the beneficiary can sue the promiser for the breach just as any party to a contract can sue the other. Because the rights of the third party are defined by the contract created between the promiser and the promisee, the promiser may assert against the beneficiary any defenses to the contract that could be asserted against the promisee. These include all of the traditional basis by which the formation of a contract may be challenged, for example, lack of capacity, lack of consideration, the statute of frauds, and all of the traditional basis by which non-performance on the contract may be excused, for example, failure of consideration, impossibility, illegality, frustration of purpose. Because the promiser can assert any defenses that could be asserted against the promisee, the beneficiary also becomes liable for counterclaims on the contract that the promiser could establish against the promisee. This liability can never exceed the amount that the promiser owes under the contract. In other words, if the promiser is owed money by the promisee, any award to the third party for the promiser's failure to perform can be reduced by the amount thus owed. If the promiser is owed more than the value of the contract, the beneficiary's recovery will be reduced to nothing, but the third party can never be made to assume an actual debt. A creditor beneficiary can sue both the promiser and the promisee, but the beneficiary cannot recover against both. If the suit is successful against one party to the contract, the other party will be dismissed. Because the creditor beneficiary is receiving the performance of the promiser in order to fulfill the promisee's debt, the failure of the promiser to perform means that the beneficiary can still sue the promisee to recover the pre-existing debt. The failure of performance simply means that the debt has never been paid. A donee beneficiary can sue the promiser directly to enforce the promise. Seaver v. Ransom a donee beneficiary is when a contract is made expressly for giving a gift to a third party, the third party is known as the donee beneficiary. The most common donee beneficiary contract is a life insurance policy. Rights that accrue to the promisee. The promisee can also sue the promiser for failing to pay the third party beneficiary. Under the common law, such suits were barred, but courts have since determined that the promisee can sue for specific performance of the contract provided that the beneficiary has not already sued the promiser. Furthermore, if the promisee was in debt to a creditor beneficiary, and the failure of the promiser to perform caused the promisee to be held liable for that debt, the promisee can sue to recover the amount of the debt. Now a word from our sponsor.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Law School of America. In contract law and administrative law, delegation, Latin intercessio, is the act of giving another person the responsibility of carrying out the performance agreed to in a contract. Three parties are concerned with this act. The party who had incurred the obligation to perform under the contract is called the delegator. The party who assumes the responsibility of performing this duty is called the delegatee, and the party to whom this performance is owed is called the obligee. Contract Law Delegable Contracts A delegation will be null and void if it poses any threat to the commercially reasonable expectations of the obligee. For example, a task requiring specialized skills or based on the unique characteristics of the promisee cannot be delegated. If a specific celebrity was hired to make a speech, they could not delegate the task to another person, even if the other person would give the same speech, word for word. However, a delegation of performance that does not pose such a threat will be held to be valid. In such a case, the obligee will be under an affirmative duty to cooperate with the delegatee to the extent necessary for the fulfillment of the delegator's obligations. Breach of a Delegated Contract If the delegatee fails to perform satisfactorily, the obligee may elect to treat this failure as a breach of the original contract by the delegator or may assert himself as a third-party beneficiary of the contract between the delegator and the delegatee, and can claim all remedies due to a third-party beneficiary. If the delegation is without consideration, the delegator remains liable for non-performance, while the delegatee will not be liable to anyone for anything. Unlike an assignment, a delegation is virtually always for consideration, and never donative. Few people are going to accept the charitable offer to perform a task contracted to someone else. Compare, assignment. A parallel concept to delegation is assignment, which occurs when one party transfers his present rights to receive the benefits accruing to the assigner under that contract. A delegation and an assignment can be accomplished at the same time, although the right to sue for non-payment always stays with the delegator. Under the common law, a contract clause prohibiting assignment also prohibits delegation. Another common law rule requires that a party to a contract cannot delegate performance that involves special skills or reputation, although it is possible to have a novation under such circumstances. Administrative Law In administrative law, the law that controls government action and decisions, a delegation is the process of handing some administrative action or decision to a subordinate. It is achieved through two mechanisms. One. Where a statute or delegated legislation appoints an authorized person to manage the power for a minister or CEO. Here the delegate acts in their own name, and the delegation is a position that does not cease with the appointment of a new delegate. 2. In some circumstances a person in whom some power is vested can authorize another person to exercise that power on their behalf. Here the underling is appointed to act as if they were the authorized person, usually for the administrative necessity of managing huge workloads in a government department. Here the delegate acts in person of the authorized person rather than in their own name, and the delegator can still exercise the powers as necessary even though much of the day-to-day -day operations are enacted by subordinates. Novation, in contract law and business law, is the act of dash. 1. 
replacing an obligation to perform with another obligation, or 2. Adding an obligation to perform, or 3. Replacing a party to an agreement with a new party. In international law, novation is the acquisition of territory by a sovereign state through the gradual transformation of a right in territorio alieno into full sovereignty without any formal and unequivocal instrument to that effect intervening. Origins in Roman Law Novati, as a legal term is derived from the Roman law, in which novatio was of three kinds, substitution of a new debtor, expromisio, or delegatio, of a new creditor, cessio nominum vel actionum, or of a new contract. In English law the term, though it occurs as early as Brockton, is scarcely naturalized, the substitution of a new debtor or creditor being generally called an assignment, and of a new contract a merger. It is doubtful, however, whether merger applies except where the substituted contract is one of a higher nature, as where a contract under seal supersedes a simple contract. Where one contract is replaced by another, it is of course necessary that the new contract should be a valid contract, founded upon sufficient consideration. The extinction of the previous contract is sufficient consideration. The question whether there is a novation most frequently arises in the course of dealing between a customer and a new partnership, and on the assignment of the business of a life assurance company with reference to the assent of the policyholders to the transfer of their policies. The points on which novation turns are whether the new firm or company has assumed the liability of the old, and whether the creditor has consented to accept the liability of the new debtors and discharge the old. The question is one of fact in each case. See especially the Life Assurance Companies Act 1872, S. 7, where the word novations occurs in the marginal note to the section, and so has quasi-statutory sanction. Scottish law seems to be more stringent than English law in the application of the doctrine of novation, and to need stronger evidence of the creditor's consent to the transfer of liability. In American law, as in English, the term is something of a novelty, except in Louisiana, where much of the civil law is retained. Novation versus assignment. In contrast to an assignment, which is generally valid as long as the other party is given notice, except where the obligation is specific to the obligor, as in a personal service contract with a specific ballet dancer, or where assignment would place a new and special burden on the counterparty, a novation is valid only with the consent of all parties to the original agreement. A contract transferred by the novation process transfers all duties and obligations from the original obligor to the new obligor. Examples of novation For example, if there exists a contract whereby Dan will give a TV to Alex, and another contract whereby Alex will give a TV to Becky, then, it is possible to novate both contracts and replace them with a single contract wherein Dan agrees to give a TV to Becky. In contrast to assignment, novation requires the consent of all parties. Consideration is still required for the new contract, but it is usually assumed to be the discharge of the former contract. Another classic example is when Company A enters a contract with Company B and a novation is included to ensure that if Company B sells, merges or transfers the core of their business to another company, the new company assumes the obligations and liabilities that Company B has with Company A under the contract. So in terms of the contract, a purchaser, merging party or transferee of Company B steps into the shoes of Company B with respect to its obligations to Company A. Alternatively, a novation agreement may be signed after the original contract in the event of such a change. This is common in contracts with governmental entities, an example being under the United States Anti-Assignment Act, the governmental entity that originally issued the contract must agree to such a transfer or it is automatically invalid by law.
The criteria for novation comprise the obligee's acceptance of the new obligor, the new obligor's acceptance of the liability, and the old obligor's acceptance of the new contract as full performance of the old contract. Novation is not a unilateral contract mechanism, hence allows room for negotiation on the new TNCs under the new circumstances. Thus, acceptance of the new contract as full performance of the old contract may be read in conjunction to the phenomenon of mutual agreement of the TNCs. Application in Financial Markets Novation is also used in futures and options trading to describe a special situation where the central clearinghouse interposes itself between buyers and sellers as a legal counterparty, for example, the clearinghouse becomes buyer to every seller and vice versa. This obviates the need for ascertaining creditworthiness of each counterparty and the only credit risk that the participants face is the risk of the clearinghouse defaulting. In this context, novation is considered a form of risk management. The term is also used in markets that lack a centralized clearing system, such as swap trading in certain over-the-counter OTC derivatives, where novation refers to the process where one party to a contract may assign its role to another, who is described as stepping into the contract. This is analogous to selling a future contract. International Law Novation is a rare means of acquiring title in international law. Examples include Orkney and the Shetland Islands, which were pledged to Scotland by the King of Norway in lieu of a debt in 1468. They were annexed by Scotland in 1472, Corsica, which was only pledged to France by Genoa in a treaty of 1768, and Belize, which was originally only a grant of logging rights to the British by Spain in the Treaty of Paris, 1763. Some cases, like that of Belize, remain controversial. The Law School of America this has been a Creative Commons licensed podcast. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America. Mm-hmm.